Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I'm talking to Phil Burton Cartledge, author of Falling Down, The Conservative Party and the Decline of Tory Britain, about the Conservative Leadership Contest. I've already interviewed Phil about his book um, and you can find that in the A World to Win archives if you want a longer episode about the book. But this week we are talking about the Tory Leadership Contest. Um, we speak about why there seems to be such a dearth of talent in the Tory party, um, why both candidates seem to be trying to to model themselves on Margaret Thatcher and whether they have any of the answers to the kind of long-term challenges that the country faces, but also that the Conservative Party itself faces. Thank you, as always, to all of our amazing patrons who make the show possible. Um, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. That's how we continue to produce this podcast. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's also a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please consider sharing this episode or other episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I apologize. I have a little bit of a cold this week. So send me your well wishes. And now here is a quick word from our sponsor before my interview with Phil Burton Cartledge. The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialist conference in North America returns this September, the 2nd to the 5th in Chicago, and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organisers, abolitionists and socialists for four days of discussion and debate around radical politics, history and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organising, Palestinian liberation and much more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Walia, Dereka Purnell, Olafemio Taiwo, Kim Kelly, Mohammed El Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. And many of those names you will recognize as former guests on this show. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here today with Phil Burton Cartledge and we are going to be talking today about the Conservative Leadership Contest. Fun, fun, fun. Now, Phil, you have written a book about the decline of the Conservative Party, which seemed at the time, particularly when it came out, um, when the Tories were kind of riding the wave of that big um, victory in 2019, it seemed a bit kind of counterintuitive to say that the Conservative Party was in decline. So can you remind us um, of your kind of central thesis as to why you thought the Conservative Party was facing so many challenges and how those challenges are playing out in this contest? Sure. It's about a crisis in Conservative political representation. And so what do we mean by that? So the Conservatives, as I'm sure your listeners uh, well, well know, are increasingly dependent on an elderly vote. Now, Ordinarily, this wouldn't be a problem for any liberal democratic political party because, as William Hague put it, you know, there's always going to be plenty of old people. But my thesis is that actually older people and their tendency to vote conservatism isn't a consequence of age, but is a consequence of the material circumstances that surround age. One of those is the social location of being a retired person. And that social location is one that is quite analogous to 
what we might call a petty bourgeois social location, i.e. you're on a relatively fixed income. If a crisis strikes, you can't enter back into the workforce easily in order to make good uh, your financial situation and so on. And for obviously for some of those pensioners as well, they're uh, dependent on stock shares and property values, which brings me to the second point, is that older people over time have tend to have accumulated property. Now, that property might not be megabooks property. It might be a relatively modest uh, piece of real estate. So I think about my parents, for example. They own their two-bedroom semi-detached house that me and my brother grew up in. Price-wise, it's probably worth about £130,000, £140,000. But nevertheless, you know, they've got an interest in making sure that that value of that house grows over time. So when they pass on, they'll have something to pass to me and my brother. Now, the problem is that the Conservatives have got is that this property acquisition is started to break down. As we see, and a lot of intelligent or more intelligent Conservatives, I should say, have started to realise this as well. If you can't get younger people, if you can't get working age people onto the housing ladder, then the conservatising effects of property will not have the same consequences that they've had for my parents' generation and so on. And this is something that uh, Ed West, who is um, who wrote his own book on this issue, came out in early 2020. He argued that the Conservatives are in decline. And one of the things that worries him the most is people around his age, so early 40s, are not conservative like him, whereas he was led to believe they were. And of course, he he blames social liberal teachers and the education system for this. But the more convincing explanation, of course, is the breakdown in property relationships. And so when we had the Conservatives winning that election in 2019, even though, you know, they more or less, you know, they probably smashed the Labour Party, they got the second highest vote the Conservatives have ever got at a general election. Nevertheless, the seeds of their destruction were still there. The coalition that they brought together, that leave Brexit coalition, was overwhelmingly populated by older people, retired people, propertied people. And younger people, working age people still, even in the conditions of 2019, still voted for Labour by, um, I think it's somewhere around about 40, 45% of working age people voted for Labour and a much smaller portion of working age people voted Conservative. And so there's the problem that the Tories have got in a nutshell. And Brexit and Boris Johnson have not solved this. It's interesting because, you know, youth is obviously like socially constructed. The What counts as youth varies dramatically across time, across different countries. And it's almost as though the housing crisis combined with you know, issues around employment and progression and wages, the cost of childcare, have kind of forcibly extended a lot of people's youth, such that whilst you can say, oh, there's always going to be plenty of old people, actually, a lot of kind of Gen Xs and millennials will be young in attitudes as well as in kind of living standards for much longer than they otherwise might have been, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, this is something that me and my significant other often talk about you know I'm 45 and I look at my parents when they were 45 and you know the popular memes of 
you know, of people yeah. having, you know, cars, houses, kids and all of those. The Chad, of- you yeah. know, like married at 25 car house and then, you know, the like lame millennial who can't do anything. That's yeah, that's it. I mean, the only difference that's between me now, age 45 and me, age 25, is I've got a much better job now than I had when I was 20. Yeah. Apart from that, you know, I'm, I'm still in many ways a kid and I think maybe it's because we don't have yeah a big a very big an old kid but maybe it's because we don't have children but then when I speak to my friends mm. who do have children they feel more or less the same way as well and this isn't just it can't just be a cultural thing as you say it's about jobs it's about property as well and that obviously has a lot to do with it and those kind of attitudes that we have a sort of a devil may care maybe a bit of a slightly nihilistic attitude maybe mm. a slightly sort of Rye kind of Gen X attitude sort of thing. Obviously, material conditions have conspired to uh, extend that for for long periods. And so, you know, I came around at the end of of Generation X, you know, late nineteen seventies. But when I look at my values and what I think and my own experiences of the job market, and I look at my friends who are millennials and my students who are Gen Z or Zoomers, you know, their experiences are very similar to mine as well. And unsurprisingly attitudes are quite similar as well um so how then phil are the two brilliant candidates that we have in this race liz trust and rishi sunak planning to tackle the issues that the conservative party faces alongside obviously their uh brilliant plans to tackle all of the problems that we face as a country do you think that they're aware of the kind of existential challenges that the conservative party faces because they both seem to be modeling themselves on a conservative prime minister, a very successful one, who's you know who was in power over forty years ago now, Margaret Thatcher. Do any of them have any uh, proposals to solve the problems that Thatcherism created, of which the housing crisis is obviously one? Of course, they don't. I mean, when you look at Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, they are both incredibly poor candidates, even by the standards of the Conservative Party. I thought that Penny Morden was probably their best bet because she was from a relatively modest background. Uh, she represents a working class seat. And she had some interesting, in, by conservative standards, ideas about what needs to be done. But even she didn't uh, have any kind of inkling about the crisis that is engulfing or is kind of waiting in the wings to bring down the Tories. I suppose both Sunak and Truss, they do talk about building on the green belt a bit. But this has always been a a bit of a shibboleth of the Tories, that if only we reformed planning acts, if only we could unleash local government and let them build wherever they want, then all of a sudden the housing crisis would be solved. Well, of course not. The reason why houses aren't getting built is because of questions of profit. You know, building companies are companies. They are in the business of accumulating capital. And if they don't see a profitable opportunity to put spades in the ground, they won't do it. Plus, it suit, a housing shortage suits them because then they can get top dollar on their overwhelmingly shoddy new builds as well. And so those kind of solutions, I don't think, are going to work. And also the kind of the other solutions that this trust keeps banging on about in terms of these uh, low tax enterprise zones. So we've had a um, kind of a flavour in this in that other Tory shibboleth of a... Um, free ports where effectively you know you set up a port or you designate an existing port as a kind of a 
tax-free, duty-free zone, but one that also suspends particular kinds of labour laws and regulations and so on. Obviously, what Trust has in mind is something similar for designated locations around the country. And so I guess the idea would be to have a development corporation that would come in and would magically build houses. And of course, that's not going to work either. And ultimately, I don't think they do have a grasp on the danger that the Tory party are in because they've they've drunk the Brexit Kool-Aid. They think that Boris Johnson won in 2019 because of, well, getting Brexit done and a whole host of other conservative sounding policies. But when you actually look at polling that was done just yesterday, it came out yesterday, I think it was YouGov, who looked at you know the what were Boris Johnson's most popular legacies amongst the electorate, and there were those policies that were vaguely labour sounding, so stuff like levelling up, investing in science, net zero, you know stuff that you wouldn't normally associate with the Conservatives, and of course Truss and Sunak, they're not really interested in any of those. They talk about levelling up, but you actually look at the nitty gritty of their policies. They're not going to address house building. And their main idea for stimulus is a tax cut, which isn't going to affect anyone who's earning under £13,000 anyway. So it's just, you know, they're bereft of ideas. Why do you think there is such a dearth of talent in the Conservative Party at the moment alongside this total lack of ideas? I think part of it is, as we know, kind of on the truisms that parties that are in power for a long time get exhausted. And it's particularly true under in during Boris Johnson's time, even though he was only there for three years, and of course he's still in. I think that he kind of really sucked a lot of the life out of the party as well, because firstly, you know, in that early period of his leadership, he had to demonstrate to the public that he was entirely serious about getting Brexit done, up to the point of, you know, banging heads together in the Tory party and expelling grandees like Ken Clark and Nicholas Soames. And for some people, because they were really kind of looking for a lot of people who could just quickly put into a seat when the snap election was called in 2019, a lot of those people were just talentless time servers. So I think that's part of the reason why. But also when you look at the intellectual orthodoxy within the Tory party, which is, I suppose you can make a distinction between the hard right, which is what you would call neoliberal economics, very fundamentalist, free market stuff, which you know I'd locate Rishi Sunak in that particular camp, and the social conservatives who are very much on the uh, the Kemi Badenoch, who of course was one of the leadership candidates during this contest, who are very, for want of a better word, socially conservative, but keen to fight the culture wars, and that's your intellectual universe and so there's not much room within that universe to actually think through or think afresh about certain problems so of course the Tories like to pretend that they are a broad church but really they're not Um, it's a bit like trying to say that Labour under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown was a broad church well really was it no, there was a very clear orthodoxy. And if you wanted to advance within that, you pay lip service to that orthodoxy. And it's the same sort of situation in the Tory party. In other words, it doesn't incentivise creative thinking. It's interesting because there was this argument that Boris Johnson was going to be a kind of Bonapartist or mm. in Gramscian terms, perhaps more accurately, kind of Caesarist figure mm. who would um, you know, come into the Conservative Party, shake things up, 
overcome a big divide that had emerged both within the Conservative Party and also within Parliament more generally, forced through a very particular agenda and kind of overcome a lot of vested interest in the process of doing that. And yet, actually, he ended up being more kind of encumbered by vested interests and, you know, just followed around by sleaze and corruption allegations and all those different sorts of things than almost any other prime minister that we've seen in recent history and really did fail to deal with the the divides that had emerged within the Tory party. And if anything, made them worse because all mm. of these new MPs came in from various different parts of the country who kind of weren't selected based on those like canonical conservative values around balancing the books and cutting taxes, but who were from very different backgrounds, both kind of sociologically and ideologically. And we've now got this legacy of a, a Conservative Party that's more divided than ever, and also lacking anyone who seems to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, and I think the root of Boris Johnson's malaise is not just his personal foible. So I think I think we can all admit that that was always going to bring him down eventually. But it's the nature of the coalition that he's part of. So, of course, you know, when Boris Johnson won that 2019 election on the basis of getting Brexit done, you know, we have to ask who were the people that found that compelling? Well, of course, it was Leave voters. But who were Leave voters? Leave voters were overwhelmingly old and propertied. And this is ultimately why his efforts at trying to get levelling up through, kind of trying to force through a Tory modernisation of the country has, has come to nothing. Because ultimately, building loads of houses and, you know, spreading industry around the country and spreading prosperity around the country by moving government departments here, there and everywhere. Firstly, that doesn't benefit his existing coalition much. It doesn't create new opportunities. Building more houses threatens the value of property held by existing property owners. And if you already have a constituency that has an interest in seeing those assets inflate further, that's not going to help. But also, you've got to think about the institutional backers behind Boris Johnson as well. Some of the key kind of big businesses that support the Tories are big property owners. And so those big property owners also don't have an interest in seeing more houses built or more uh, more kind of shops or commercial properties built because they want to maximise the lets that they've already got. And ultimately, also, you've got to take into account treasury orthodoxy as well. Now, obviously, you know, in Stolen, in your, in your own book, Grace, you talked about the treasury and its role in financialization. And also the fact that the Treasury has a very close relationship to the Bank of England and to the City of London as well. And of course, it is the City of London which uh, successive Conservative Party governments have strove to protect above all else. Now, of course, the common sense of the City of London is, uh, you know, more or less let the country go hang. We don't care what happens in the in the regions or in the cities outside of London. This as long as Money keeps pouring into London from around the world so we can still make all those uh, brokerage fees and we can find new investment opportunities and and that sort of thing. And um, that breeds a certain kind of orthodoxy in terms of wanting to open up markets and let capital flow as freely as possible. And so, but that also means prudent investment or very directed investment 
where the parts of the state are concerned. You know, the traditional Tory view of the state as being some sort of kind of neoliberal night watchman in which it keeps its hands off the levers of the economy and just lets capital do its own thing. That is genuinely believed and also is consistent with the class interests of the people that tend to populate the Treasury and also some of the politicians who uh, populate the Tory benches as well. And so this is the the fundamental bedrock of the opposition of the Treasury to the levelling up agenda. So with Rishi Sunak, for instance, who, you know, he was made by Boris Johnson, effectively, he was virtually unknown before then. I think he appeared on one or two of the Brexit programmes during the referendum. I vaguely remember him from back then. But he was someone who came from a city background. He made £200 million uh, sinking the global economy back in 2008. He's fully kind of versed in that sort of orthodoxy. And so when Johnson sent him to the Treasury as Chancellor, basically he seamlessly enmeshed with that city Bank of England Treasury nexus. And so that gave him a great deal of institutional clout and power within the state to oppose Johnson's modest modernisation schemes. So why Johnson failed is a combination of treasury orthodoxy and resistance, contradictory and contradictory interests within the Tory voter coalition as well. Now, let's take a look at who is likely to succeed him, because we've got Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss. Initially, I think there was, well, for a while now, there's been kind of some expectation that uh, Rishi Sunak was maybe being built up to succeed Boris Johnson. But then all of these stories leaked about his wife's tax affairs, Mm. his own green card. He handled it very badly. It was seen to kind of make him very unrelatable. And he hasn't particularly shone over the course of the campaign. So by default, Liz Truss now looks like she's in the lead. But she's made so many gaffes and committed several U-turns over the course of this campaign that her lead, which was initially when the two candidates um, were announced, very wide, has shrunk quite considerably over the course of the race. You know, this doesn't really bode well, does it, that we've got these two candidates, one of whom has been, you know, avoiding tax and has apparently absolutely no ability to kind of present himself as a man of the people. And then Liz Truss, who just seems completely all over the place like pretty incompetent at the same time as being very ideologically rigid what does this mean for the country well of course the thing is with uh, Liz Truss's her ideological rigidity is all a performance as well because if you look at her career since she's been a conservative party politician it's always been one to cozy up to power and say what what the orthodoxy is at that particular moment in order to get on so at the moment she's like you know she's mrs brexit she's a buccaneering um, free trader and she's a socially conservative war on woke prosecutor but that's because it politically suits her i mean if politics was slightly different if things were a bit fluffier i'm sure that she would suddenly be a very socially liberal politician of course she was very pro-remain before uh, 2016 as well. And of course, you know, there's the Liberal Democrat heritage as well when she was a teenager, but it won't hold that against her when there's plenty of other things that we can hold against her. <laughs> um, yeah. Also, I think one of the things about Liz Truss that really strikes me about her is that like Rishi Sunak, she is very politically flat footed. She doesn't understand politics in the same way that I think Boris Johnson does. She doesn't think 
through things. Whereas Boris Johnson didn't have to kind of really think about stuff because he always had the press on side to kind of shield him from the consequences of his hubris. Trust does not have that legacy. And we saw that yesterday with her U-turn over regional pay. So for those of you who don't know, um, it was it snuck out on Monday night that one of her big ideas to save £8.8 billion was to introduce regional pay boards across the public sector in order to effectively reduce the wages of everyone outside of the southeast. And this would include not just the usual kind of like civil servants and um, librarians and council workers, but also nurses, doctors, police. And I think I did read military as well. And this is, of course, absolutely ludicrous from a Tory standpoint, where you know, levelling up is the kind of seen as the crucial Conservative Party policy that they need to um, push in order to win the next election. So it was incredible that that was put out in the, in the first place. So you've got to think in the co- in the context of that being your chief policy, and also in the context of a pretty brutal cost of living crisis in which energy bills are going to soar even further come October, that they could even be contemplating this, not just contemplating it, but brief it to the press, and then to have her then U-turn on it within 12 hours. I don't think there's ever been as quick a U-turn within a Tory leadership contest before about uh, an unpopular policy. But what this also demonstrates is that you know these kinds of things will happen again. Already I've kind of saw from some of the press reaction that this got yesterday that she portrayed this as a kind of a a, uh, a misinterpretation of her position because what her position would have involved was only new starters in these in the public sector would be subject to lower pay, but she's scrapped it anyway. And of course, a lot of the press saying, well, no, this is not a misinterpretation. How could we have misinterpreted this? So some of them who are willing to have given trust a bit of slack I think are going to be a bit harder on her over the course of this campaign, particularly those sort of centrist, soft Tory journalists as well. And so what that means is if she wins, and I still think that she's most likely to win, is that we can expect more gaffes of this nature, more damaging U-turns for the Tories. And it also means that Labour, despite its own difficulties and issues that we might have with Keir Starmer, is still, I think, on course to form the next government at the next general election. Yeah, interesting. I still think that we're going to be in a situation of having no clear majority and Mm -hmm. some difficulties forming a government, whoever manages to emerge as the biggest party. So we shall see. Mm. But the question I wanted to ask you as well is for, for people who kind of aren't familiar with the mechanics of this leadership contest, Who's actually going to be deciding the result? Who are the members of the Conservative Party? What are their backgrounds? How many of them are there? You know, who is going to basically be choosing our next PM? Well, this is why Tory watchers and and geeks like myself, who keep an eye on the Tory party, enjoy Tory leadership contests, is because it always reveals the membership figures. Because the only time the Tories ever provide reliable membership figures is the number of ballot papers that they send out to their members and they report those. So at the last Tory leadership contest, oh, now you're really taxing my memory, I think it came out that somewhere around about 190,000 members then, which of course was an increase on what it had been previously. 
but now they're kind of briefing that is around about 100 between 130 and 160,000 that's that kind of rings true to me and who are these people well they're overwhelmingly male which itself is quite interesting because mm. historically the conservative party has been dominated by women as as bizarre as that may sound but women have always until round about the mid noughties have always formed the majority of tory membership they were the backbones of the tory associations and so on so majority men majority of them are over the age of 58 they're white and somewhere in the region of 80% of them come from the ABC ones, you know, the, the wealthier parts of the occupational structure. And of course, majority of those that are over 58 are retired as well. So it is very much a pensioners party. You know, the young conservatives, you can probably fit them all into a um, into a phone box if we still have any phone boxes left anywhere, if any of the audience know what a phone box is. Um, <laughs> they're a very, um, you know, the Tory party itself reflects its demographics reflect the wider crisis of the Conservative Party in terms of its political representation. It's just not attracting younger people in sufficient numbers. Now, of course, you go back to the 1950s and the early 1960s, and at least on paper, the Conservative Party was the biggest political party in the country. It had almost three million members, and there were clear incentives for joining the Tories, not just because of, you know, I like the Tories and I want them to win, but it was very much a, there was a big social Tory scene. There's a lot of Tory clubs, networks of Tory clubs around the country that were good, interesting and relatively cheap drinking establishments. Also, it served as a way of networking, of kind of acting as a vehicle of social mobility. So if you were young and ambitious in a managerial grade in a, in a, in a company, join your local conservative party you can network with other people and your kind of your betters and superiors at work and so on and that kind of ladder was that kind of social climbing ladder if you like was kicked away in the 1980s given us the Tory party that we've got today so you know to- uh, Margaret Thatcher's gutting smashing of the labor movement in the 1980s also had the consequence of smashing effectively Tory party organisation as well. One thing Conservatives don't like to mention is during the 11 years of Margaret Thatcher's reign, party membership dropped by a million people, which is an absolutely huge number. And so the Tory party, if you like, what we have today is a shell of what it used to be. And it's a very shrunken, shriveled, and one might say wrinkly shell of what once was. Phil, that is all that we have time for today, I think. Before we go, one more question actually quickly. Do you think that we're heading for a general election as soon as this contest is over and then we will uh, close off? (laughs) Um, I remember uh, when uh, Theresa May got in and I said, and despite her repeated insistences that there wasn't going to be a general election, I said, there's not going to be one. And then she dropped that bomb on us in mid-April 2017. And thank goodness that she did. Uh, But um, I think that it's unlikely because one of the reasons why May went for that election was because her majority was wafer thin and she thought she could get a thumping majority. The reason why Boris Johnson went for an election was because he didn't have a majority and he wanted to break the logjam in Parliament and knew that by kind of uniting the Leave vote around the Tories, he stood a good chance of getting a good majority. Now, with Liz Truss, who I still think is going to win, or Sunak, who I don't think is going to win, but either of them will have a parliamentary majority of 75 Tories. Of course, you've got those that are suspended and and so on. 
And so why would they? Why would she, why would Truss or Sunak have an election? The only way, way they would have an election is if that parliamentary party becomes ungovernable and they're able to kick out the dissenters. But that would be require a lot of bloodletting. And I don't think the Tories have got the stomach for that. And I don't think the leader has the authority to ram that through either. So I'm going to tentatively say now that there will not be a, a general election. And the next general election will be as scheduled in uh, 2024. What a shame. Um, Phil Burton Cartledge, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win today. Do you want to let people know where they can find you and where they can get to your book? Sure. Um, my book, uh, Falling Down the Conservative Party in the Decline of Tory Britain, can be found in all bookshops, all good bookshops, or you can order it directly from Verso. And I understand there is a 20% sale on at the moment. So grab it while it's hot. Also, I write regularly at my blog, All That Is Solid, though confusingly, it has the, uh, the web address of a very public sociologist. So if you can search either of those, you should find it. And my Twitter handle is at PhilBC3. Thanks very much, Phil. Cheers. Cheers.